verses. Here's what it says. Luke 23, 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country, and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that have never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you, God, that you're here among us. God, you've given us your spirit to illuminate the text of Scripture. And God, I thank you that these things happened. That you sent your son into the world to suffer and die in our place. And God, I pray that you just tune our hearts to you this morning. God, these are familiar verses as we watch the Lord Jesus walking up the hill to be hung on the cross. But God, I pray that they would speak to us in a fresh way this morning. That you give us fresh insight, God. Lord, that you'd soften our hearts. That you'd help us to love you more. That you'd help us to love you rightly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, Jesus is literally just minutes away from being nailed to a cross. Minutes. Just, just moments away from the crucifixion. He would be pierced through his hands and his feet. I don't know if you've ever been pierced through the hands or the feet. I remember I stepped on a nail one time, went all the way through my shoe, and it barely broke the skin, and that was a pretty scary moment. (laughs) I've never had a nail actually put all the way through my foot. Some of you have probably experienced that. Jesus had nails driven through his hands, both of his feet. And then he hung from those nails, suspended, until he would eventually suffocate and die. It is a brutal scene. It's violent. It's bloody. It's horrible. But it's also incredibly sad. It's so sad. We've been reading the Gospel of Luke, studying it now for six years. And after 22 chapters of Luke's Gospel, we've learned a lot of things. But one of the things that we've learned at a real high level is that Jesus was a wonderful man. I mean, he was, a, he, was, he was the greatest man who's ever lived. He was the greatest human being who's ever lived. Could you imagine knowing Jesus, rolling with Jesus? I mean, he was infinitely kind and patient and selfless and compassionate. I think Jesus was fun. I think he was probably hilarious to hang out with. I mean, Jesus, he was so wise. If, if you needed some advice, you go to Jesus, and he just has the perfect thing to say. He's full of courage. He's full of wisdom. And not only that, but he's totally righteous. He's done everything right his entire life. He's never done anything wrong at all, let alone anything illegal. Certainly nothing worthy of Roman crucifixion, which was the worst form of torture and capital punishment ever invented by humanity. So it begs a question. 
So we get into this season, we get into these verses. How should you feel about this scene? Have you ever asked yourself that? How should you feel about Jesus' passion, his crucifixion? I'm guessing that many of you, probably most of you, the older you are, the more likely this is to be true. You've lost people that you dearly love. And I'm going to ask a question here. This is a heavy question, but it's a heavy passage. And so I think it's important. I want you to think about somebody that you lost who you dearly, dearly love. How did you feel in the moments before when you knew they were going to die? The days before, the hours before, when you knew that person, it's a foregone conclusion, they're going to die and you love them. It's gut-wrenching. I've not been through that very many times in my life. Thankfully, I know I will be through it more, though, as time passes. And it's a brutal thing. Death is a cruel thing. And when you know someone you care about and you love is about to die, it is heartbreaking. And that's where we are with Jesus. We know he's about to die. Moments away, how are we supposed to feel? Well, Jesus says something astonishing in verse 28. Luke's gospel is the only one that records this. He says, do not weep for me. Do not weep for me. That's a command. In other words, Jesus says, don't feel sorry for me. Don't feel sad about what's happening here to me. And this is the big idea I want to focus on this morning. It's this. When you look at the cross, you're not supposed to feel bad for Jesus. Did you know that? Have you ever thought about that? Now, this doesn't mean that the scene is not sad or somber or difficult. Of course it is. But Jesus says, don't weep for me. You're not supposed to feel bad for me. Why? Why is that? Two reasons. First, Jesus is in complete control. Right here, as he's walking up the hill about to be nailed to the cross, he's totally in control of every detail of what's happening. How do we know that? Well, we know first because he said it was going to happen. In Luke 18, verse 31, it says, Then he took the twelve aside and told them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now, at first you think it was being a little bit cryptic. What, What about the prophets is about to happen? But then he gets very specific. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, that's the Romans, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on, And after they flog him, they will kill him. And he will rise on the third day. Jesus has been saying this for over a year to his disciples. All the way back in Luke chapter 9 is where he first tells them he's going to be killed. He says it multiple times there in multiple different settings and situations to different audiences. He says it in Luke 13. He says it in Luke 18, Luke 20. This should come as a surprise to no one what's happening right here. He says they're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to flog him, and then they're going to kill him. He's been very specific that this is the plan. The whole time it's been the plan. In Matthew's gospel, when they come to arrest Jesus, it says this, and they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place. Because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think 
that I cannot call on my Father, and He will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels. How then would the Scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Think about the power Jesus has. Could you imagine if like some people came to your house and they're trying to cause some trouble and you had the ability, like you, you just had the secret service and you just call them, boom. There's like 400 FBI agents at your house instantly. <laughs> I mean, the confidence that you would have, you'd be scared of anything. Just tanks show up at your house. Jesus says 12 legions, more than 12 legions of angels, supernatural beings who can just zap people, gone, poof. He's <laughs> like, we're not, he's totally in control. Everything is going exactly according to his plan. In John, it says, then when they came to arrest Jesus, they asked which one of them was him. Jesus steps forward, he says, I am he. And what John says is when Jesus steps forward and says, I am he, everybody falls to the ground. There's a mob of people, hundreds of people, most of them armed. They just fall to the ground. Jesus just speaks, boom, something supernatural happens. They know Jesus is in control. Jesus knows he's in control. This is a man who has healed countless thousands of people by this point. He's just going all over the countryside, healing, 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 healing. Not only does he heal thousands of people, there's thousands of eyewitnesses that he's done it. He's not doing it in secret. And we're not talking about just lengthening someone's leg or healing their stomach ache or something like that. People who are blind from birth can see. People who've never walked before can run and jump. People who are deaf can hear. He's even raised people from the dead multiple times. He commands the weather. He creates food out of nothing and feeds a group of 20,000 people at one time. He is utterly and completely in control, not just of the details of the crucifixion. He's in control of everything, all the time. So we know he's in control. And we know he's in control because even in these last moments, we see Jesus orchestrating the details of his crucifixion for the salvation of sinners. Even a specific sinner on the road to the cross. This is a small detail in the story. Verse 26, it says, As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention this detail, that Jesus, he's carrying his cross. Then at some point, the Romans, they seize this random guy and they put the cross on him. We have to ask, why is this in the story? One sentence, we get no other information about this detail or this person. Why is this here? It's not obvious at first glance. Some commentators think, well, this is just meant to help us understand how weak Jesus was. It was customary for the Romans to have the criminals carry their own cross. This was part of the humiliation of crucifixion, part of the difficulty of it. It was about a 600-meter walk from Pilate's headquarters to Golgotha, a little over half a mile. So this is difficult. You got a piece of wood that weighs roughly 80 pounds. That'd be hard even if you're even on a good day. That's like a CrossFit workout. Carrying it half a mile up a hill. And Jesus has not slept all night. He's been beaten. He's been drugged around the city. Now he's been scourged, which is most of us wouldn't even be able to walk after that period, let alone carry a big piece of wood. And so this detail just 
some, some commentators think it just highlights the physical anguish that he's in, the weakened state that he's in. But that doesn't explain why the, the man who was seized to help him is mentioned by name. Why do we get his name? We don't just get his name, we get his hometown, Simon the Cyrenian. It says he's coming in from the country. That's an important detail. In Mark's gospel, it says he was a passerby. This is an important detail. So he's from Cyrene, which is in northern Africa. It's modern-day Libya. Josephus, the historian, tells us that Cyrene had a large population of Jews. Simon is a Jewish name. So more than likely, Simon is a Jew who's from Cyrene, born and raised in Cyrene, which means he speaks a different language, a little bit different culture, but ethnically and religiously, he is Jewish. And so that means he's likely on a pilgrimage. He's coming into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So he's traveled over 500 miles to get to Jerusalem. He's coming in from the country on the day before Passover on Friday. And it says he's, he's a passerby, which means he has no idea what's going on. He very likely has no idea who Jesus even is. Jesus never did ministry outside of Israel. He's never been to Cyrene. He very likely doesn't know about the trial or the sentence or any of it. He's just coming in from the countryside. And the Romans seized him. That means he didn't sign up for this job. He didn't know when he woke up that morning he was going to be carrying a bloody piece of wood on his back. He was forced to do it. And so it seems like Simon is just a random guy. But he can't just be a random guy. Otherwise... Luke would not tell us his name. We don't get anybody else's name in this whole scenario. We don't get any of the names of the Roman soldiers. We don't get the names of the thieves. We don't get the name even of the centurion. We're going to find out later the centurion, the Roman centurion who was overseeing this whole ordeal. He believes. After he witnesses Jesus' death, he says, certainly this was the Son of God. He's converted to faith in Christ. And even him, we don't get his name. But we do get Simon's name. And we get Simon's hometown. And in Mark, we get even more information. It says they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So now we have a name, we have a hometown, and we have his kids, Alexander and Rufus. And no other information, no other mention of him anywhere in the Bible. So why is he mentioned? There's only one possible reason. There's only one. The reason is that the audience of Matthew, Mark, and Luke must have known who he was. Simon the Cyrene is familiar to them. Let me give you an illustration. If I don't know you, and I'm telling you a story about my wife, and I say, hey, you know, my wife's the best. The other day we were doing such and such, and it was hilarious. She blah, blah, blah. And I tell you a story. The way I'm going to explain who she is in the story is by saying my wife. And I might say her name. I, I might say my wife, McKenna. And that makes sense. It gives you context. You know who I'm talking about. But if I know you, and more importantly, if you know my wife, it would be weird for me to tell the same story in the same way. If you know my wife, when I tell you the story, I'm just going to say, hey, guess what? The other day, McKenna, dot, dot, dot. And if I said my wife, it'd be weird because you know her. When we use people's names, we do it because we know our audience is familiar with the person. And so that's what's going on here. The readers of these gospel letters are familiar with Simon the Cyrene. He is familiar. He's known by the early church. Now, we know that Mark wrote his gospel in Rome, right around the time that Paul wrote the book of Romans, between 50 and 60 A.D., 
And so there's a church already established in Rome. Look at what Paul says in Romans 16. This is his closing remarks to the letter of Romans to the church in Rome. And he's saying, hey, greet this person. Say hi to this person. Thank this person. Admonish this person. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. So you have Rufus, dear brother to Christ. He's a choice man in the Lord. Friend of Paul's in Rome. And Paul says his mother, the mother of Rufus, she's like a, she's like a mom to me. Say hi to them. Very likely, Rufus's mother is the wife of Simon of Cyrene. In Acts chapter 13, in Acts chapter 11, we read about a church in Cyrene early, early on in the first century. Missionaries come from Cyrene to Antioch preaching the gospel. They equip some of the people in Antioch and then they send out, they commission Paul and Barnabas to go out from Antioch. Many scholars believe that this was Simon who met Jesus on the road to Golgotha, very likely for the first time. That it was Simon who was seized to carry Jesus' cross who returned to Cyrene and preached the gospel there. Started a church there, which means he himself believed. Now, we don't know that unequivocally, but it doesn't just seem uh, plausible. It seems actually very likely, contextually. And in any case, it it doesn't diminish the point that the Lord Jesus in his moment of greatest weakness, when he looks the most like a victim, he can barely walk. He's still orchestrating every detail for the coming of his kingdom. Isn't that amazing? He's totally in control. Not just that Simon would believe, but that Simon was a strategic person in the early church. This is a strategic meeting by the Lord Jesus at his greatest moment of weakness. It's amazing. Jesus is totally in control. You don't need to feel sorry for Jesus. Why else should you not feel sorry for Jesus? Number two. The tragedy of the cross is not in what happened to Jesus. It's not in what happened to Jesus. Now let's think for a second about what happened to Jesus so far up to this point. First, Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest followers. One of the 12 people that he trusts more than anyone else in the world betrays him for money, to death. And it's not even a lot of money. So that's pretty bad. So they find out where Jesus is. They come and they arrest Jesus on zero charges. They, they don't even, they don't even, they just show up and arrest him. This is like Gestapo style. This is what happened under Nazi Germany. You're a political enemy. They just show up and arrest you. They don't need a reason. You're going to prison. They arrest him on no charges. In that moment, he is abandoned by all of his best friends. This would be even worse, I think. All of his best friends who just hours earlier, they were like, Jesus, if we have to die with you, we got your back. You don't wor- you're safe with us. We are with you to the end. A couple hours later, things get dicey and they run away like cowards. Jesus is utterly alone. Then he is convicted on false charges. He's arrested on no charges. They have a fake trial and they go and find false witnesses. Because Jesus hasn't done anything wrong, so they need somebody. Their law says you have to have two or more witnesses to convict someone of something. And so they say, hey, anybody want to lie about Jesus? Step right up. They probably paid people for it. (laughs) They convict him on false charges. Then he is beaten, mocked, and spit on. 
And this is the moment in the story. Now, I would have cracked way before this, but when I read this part, I'm like, I'm out on that part. He's beaten, mocked, and spit on. I couldn't handle that. Have you ever ever been mocked, like to your face? And particularly, and maybe maybe this is more of a guy thing. Have you ever been mocked by somebody to your face that you know you can beat them up? <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? That's really, really difficult. And Jesus, Jesus, think about who he is. These, these wicked men, they're mocking him. They're making fun of him. They're beating him. They're spitting on him. And he, and, and he, he could just turn them into turtles. <laughs> he could do whatever he wants. Now, I don't think Jesus was like a big, tough, strong guy. That's not what I'm saying. But he's God. He he has all of the power required to speak the universe into existence. And they're mocking him. And he's silent. He doesn't do anything. He allows it to continue. Then, ironically, it just keeps getting worse. They take Jesus to the people who actually have authority, the real judges, Herod and Pilate, because they, they want to put him to death, but they want it to be done in an official way. They take him to Pilate, and Pilate and Herod both acquit him of all charges. They say, this, this is a joke. This guy's obviously innocent. What are you doing? Pilate, over and over and over, especially in John's gospel, he tries to get them to let him go. He says, I find no grounds for charging this man. He's innocent. He begs them, just let him go. He's actually acquitted. He's not guilty. Now, don't think that Pilate is a good guy. Pilate could see what anyone could clearly see, but Pilate's not a good guy. He says, okay, here's the deal. I want to let him go, set him free. You guys want to kill him. Let's meet in the middle. (laughs) He compromises. He says, you want to kill him. I want to set him free. Let's make him bleed. Meet you in the middle. And he has him flogged. Roman flogging which in and of itself was utterly horrific. What they would do is they had a handle and a whip. It's called a cat of nine tails. And there's all of these straps of leather, long straps of leather. The end of the leather, they would tie pieces of bone, pieces of glass, pieces of iron. And they would take this whip and they would swing it hard, Roman soldiers, into your back or into your front. And then these little pieces of stuff would stick into the skin. And then on the back stroke, it would rip your skin out. And they did this over and over and over. That was how they flogged people. And so Pilate says, we'll meet you in the middle, make him bleed, and then we're going to let him go. Has him flogged, doesn't appease the crowd. They demand he's crucified. Finally, Pilate gives in. He's given over to be crucified. He has a crown of thorns stuck into his head. And at this point, he cannot even carry his own cross up the hill. Isaiah 54, 14 says his appearance was so disfigured, he did not look like a man. Have you ever wondered what that means? Maybe you didn't know that was in the Bible. That's a prophecy about the Messiah. His appearance was so disfigured, he did not look like a man. What does that mean? I remember when I was in high school, some friends of mine and I, there was a bunch of snow and we decided to go play tackle football in the snow. 
and we were like seniors in high school and had not played tackle football. We played tackle football for real in school, but we hadn't played since we were like younger, maybe 11 or 12 years old, and didn't realize that tackle football when you're a senior in high school is a lot more violent, even in the snow. And so we went out, and very quickly, a couple of my friends got in a fight <laughs> playing, playing football in the snow, and so one of them punched the other one in the face, and I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. My friend Travis instantly he had a hematoma on his eye that was so big that he like didn't even look like a human. I've never seen anything like it. He, he looked like, have you ever seen the movie Goonies? He looked like sloth from the Goonies. That's what happened. From one punch, one. How many times do you think Jesus has been punched in the face at this point? I mean, he's a, he is a mess. He is a bruised, bloodied, beaten mess. And all of this happened to the only man who has ever lived a perfect life. And yet, as the mangled, bloody, dying Jesus is marching to the cross, Luke says this, verse 27, a large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him, but turning to them, Jesus said, now, before we say what he said, Think about how silent Jesus has been throughout this whole ordeal. Jesus has been silent. He's silent before his accusers. He's silent before the high priest. He's silent before Herod. He's silent before Pilate. And they are trying to engage him in dialogue. Pilate says, don't you know I have the ability to let you go? Give me something to work with here, Jesus. Like, what do you have to say for yourself? And Jesus largely says nothing. He does not defend himself. He doesn't say a thing. But here, right before he's about to die, Jesus initiates the dialogue, which should really get our attention. He's about to die. He can barely walk, but he stops. He initiates and he says something. What does he say? Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Do not weep for me. Now he doesn't say, don't weep at all. He says, don't weep for me. So it's not that there is no tragedy at the cross. It's just that the, the torture and death of Jesus is not the tragedy. It is something else. He says, there's something else you should weep for. There's something else you should mourn over. What is it? Weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. You're thinking, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> well, these women are not followers of Jesus. That's important. He calls them daughters of Jerusalem. All of Jesus's women followers and disciples were from Galilee. So these are not believers in Jesus. They're not disciples of Jesus. These are women of Jerusalem. They know who he is. They had likely heard him teaching or at least heard about his teaching in the temple earlier that week. They had likely witnessed the proceedings of that morning. And they see the situation. They see Jesus's condition. They see him struggling to walk up the hill. And they're, they're moved. They're moved. They're sad. You know, there's a sense of, of, of compassion, of like, this is wrong. This is unjust. This guy is innocent. And so they feel terrible for Jesus. They see his pain. They see the tragedy and they're weeping loudly for him. 
And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't weep for me. That's not the right response to this situation. You should weep for yourselves. You're missing the real tragedy. What is the tragedy? What is the thing you should weep for? He quotes Hosea 10.8. Hosea was a prophet who lived over 700 years before Jesus. And the main thing Hosea did is that he prophesied the destruction of Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. He said it was going to be destroyed in a horrible fashion, which is exactly what happened. The Assyrians came in and destroyed the city, killed most everyone, and captured everybody else. And this was the judgment of God against Israel because of their sin and their rebellion and their idolatry. And so here Jesus quotes Hosea 10.8. Jesus said something similar just a few days before these events in Luke 21. When he was preaching in the temple, he said, Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will be killed by the sword and led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what Jesus is saying is this. The thing you should weep for is not the judgment that has come against me in my innocence. The thing you should weep for is the judgment that is aimed at you because of your sin. In AD 70, roughly 35 years or so after the death of Jesus, a little over 35 years, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. The Romans sieged it. They encamped around it. Most of the people starved to death. The rest were killed, and the city was burned to the ground, just as Jesus predicted. Jesus is saying, weep for yourselves. Don't you see what's happening? Don't you see what's coming? The judgment of God is coming for you because of your sin. Then he says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, if they're doing this to me, an innocent, righteous man, what do you think they're going to do to you who are sinful and guilty? The tragedy of the cross is not in what happened to Jesus. The tragedy is in why it had to happen. So why did all this happen? We've said it's totally according to plan. Jesus knows what's going on. He says this is what we have to do. He's utterly in control every step of the way. And the issue is not Jesus. Jesus is innocent. And yet this terrible thing happens to him. Why did it have to happen? Why is the innocent, perfect Son of God crucified? Peter explains it this way. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. That's the cross. So that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. What's happening at the cross? What's happening? The entire ordeal leading up to it, really, Jesus' whole life is aimed at this end, is that Jesus took the wrath of God. He took the punishment of God, the judgment of the Father that is aimed at you. It's aimed at you. And He took it on Himself so that you don't have to so that you can be set free, so that you can be made righteous, so that you can be forgiven and saved and redeemed. 
The tragedy of the cross is sin. That's the tragedy. It's sin and all of the destruction and pain and death and chaos brought into the world by sin. Sin is simply when people disobey God's commands. It's when we disregard and disobey God's commands. It's when we disregard God's design. It's when we rebel against God's perfect, loving authority. That's sin. And sin is the root of all evil in the world. Sin is where all the pain comes from. It's where all the injustice comes from. It's where all the hatred comes from. It's where all of the brokenness of the world, every tornado and tsunami and earthquake and natural disaster, all of it is a consequence of sin. Jesus told the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago, in this moment, as he's walking to the cross, that God's judgment was coming, and it did. God's judgment came in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed the city. But Jesus' words, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves. They are not just for the Jews of his time. They are for you. And they're for me. So Jesus' words here, they point to two past judgments. One was in the past for his contemporaries. It was all the way back 700 years before in Hosea. But they also point to a judgment that was in the future for his contemporaries in AD 70, but in the past for us. But they also point to an even further future judgment that's still in the future for us. The final judgment at the second coming of Christ. Revelation 6, 15 says this, Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. No discrimination. Slave and free, rich and poor, king and peasant, they go hide in the caves. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Jesus' words, they point also to His second coming. We're not supposed to feel sorry for him. We're going to stand before him. And we're going to give an account of our lives. He's in control. So then what are you supposed to feel? When we read about the cross, what are you supposed to feel? Because it is a gut-wrenching emotional scene, and none of you are robots. We're not cyborgs. If you pay attention to this at all, it is deeply sad. But where do you direct that sorrow? Well, here's the big idea. In the horror of the cross, you are meant to see the horror of your sin. That's the point. Weep for yourselves. It's your sin that caused this. Yours and mine. The wrath of God is aimed at you. It's aimed at me. And the wrath of God, the judgment of God, it has been poured out many times throughout human history. Not just in Samaria, not just in Jerusalem in AD 70. We see God's judgment manifest over and over, warning people throughout human history. We've been studying the book of Genesis. You think about the flood where God wiped out all people on the face of the earth except one family. And it's a warning. His final judgment is coming. His wrath is aimed at each person because of our sin. And Jesus stepped in the way. He he stepped in front of the wrath of God and he absorbed it 
on the cross for you. That's why he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Your, your situation is worse than mine. <laughs> the judgment you're facing is eternal separation from God in hell. This is why the cross is so horrible. It shows us that judgment is coming. It shows us what our sin demands. It shows us the holiness of God. That's why it is nasty and brutal and frightening and gut-wrenching. But it also shows us the love of God. The cross shows us the love of God. Jesus was made guilty so you could be innocent. Jesus was condemned so you could be forgiven. Jesus was punished so you could be comforted. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus died so that you could live forever. And the question is, how do you escape his judgment? How do you receive his love and mercy offered at the cross? The answer is in Jesus' words. Weep for yourself. Weep for yourself. Jesus' words are not spiteful. They almost read that way. Like he's saying, hey, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves, losers. That's not his heart. Jesus' words are merciful. He's saying, he's not saying feel sorry for yourself. He's urging them to repent. He says, see your situation for what it is and turn Turn from your sin. Understand the trouble you're in and understand what I'm doing for you. And that is the application this morning is repent. Repent. There is a huge difference between feeling sorry for Jesus and true repentance. It's easy to stir up emotions when we read the story of the crucifixion and feel sad and sorry for Jesus. I don't know if you've ever watched The Passion of the Christ, that movie. It's a great movie. But the whole, the whole thing, the thing you come away with is, oh, Lord, you, just, you, you look at Jesus in that film and you just feel so sad for what he went through. That's not hard to feel that way. But that won't change your life even a little bit. That will not change your life. It's not real repentance. The thief who hangs next to Jesus is a beautiful picture of repentance. Look at what he says. We're going to get into this next week. Then one of the criminals hanging there, so now Jesus is on the cross, he's hanging in between two criminals, began to yell insults at him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He's mocking him, taunting him. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. First step of repentance is to understand you deserve to be in Jesus' place. That's why you weep for yourself. You deserve what Jesus got. It begins with an acknowledgement of the seriousness of your sin against God and the fact that you deserve His punishment. You don't deserve His love. You don't deserve His acceptance. You don't deserve His healing. You don't deserve His comfort. You don't deserve His life. You deserve His wrath. That's the first step to repentance. The second step is to turn from and cultivate a hatred for sin. So when you read this story, you're not supposed to hate Judas. You're not supposed to hate the Jews. You're not supposed to hate Caiaphas, the high priest. You're not supposed to hate Pilate. You're not supposed to hate the mockers or the other thief on the cross who's taunting Jesus. You are supposed to hate your own sin. That's the conclusion. You're supposed to hate your own sin. It is us who put him there, brothers and sisters. 
We are the reason he had to endure this. It is our sin. And to feel bad for Jesus without hating and turning from your sin is a joke. It makes a mockery of who he is and what he's done. It's easy to feel bad for Jesus. That is shallow. It's emotionalism. And it's easy to hate other people's sin. Have you ever noticed that? You say, oh, I hate sin. I hate sin. I hate it when my wife sins against me. (laughs) It's easy to hate other people's sin. That's not the application. That's not repentance. How often do you reflect on the sin that's in your heart? How often do you look at your own pride and your own stubbornness and jealousy and bitterness and lust and say, oh Lord, would you change my heart? I am so guilty before you. That's the heart of true repentance. Third step of true repentance is to turn toward and believe Jesus died to save you. It's not enough to acknowledge your guilt and turn from your sin and hate your sin. That lands you in legalistic self-righteousness. If you just stop there, you say, okay, got to do better. Got to do better. Got to lace up my, my boots, clean myself off, get back, on the, get back on the horse. You can't do it. You can't be perfect. You can't be innocent. You cannot be like Jesus. You need Him to step in and save you. You need repentance and faith. And repentance and faith in Jesus changes everything. When a person repents and believes in what Jesus did for them, the Bible says, your sins are forgiven. Man, that's wonderful. No more guilt. You're made righteous. You're made clean. It says you're born again. It says you're given a new nature. You become something different than you were before. You're made a child of God. You have a relationship with God as your father and friend. And you will escape his judgment. No judgment. That when you stand before the Lord Jesus, unlike most of the people on earth, you're not going to be wishing the mountains would fall in, just cave in on you so you don't have to face him. But you will stand and you can face him. And he will accept you with open arms into his kingdom. And you will have eternal life with him in heaven. Let me ask you this question. Do you want to be free from sin? Do you, do you, do you look at your life and say, man, there are things, there's, there's places where sin grips my life. And, and I want to be free from that. Do you want that? Do, do you want to have an intimate experiential relationship with God? Is that what you really want? If it is, you must repent and trust Jesus. And I want you to think about this. Because repentance, it's like a concept. It's a category. But it looks different for every one of you. And so ask yourself, what would it look like for you to walk in repentance right now? What what would it mean for you to repent today? What would have to happen? What, What would need to change in your life in order for you to turn from your sin and hate your sin and walk in faith in Jesus? Maybe there's something you'd have to give up. Maybe it's a relationship, behavior. Maybe there's a pattern of addiction you would need to break. Maybe there's a lie you've been concealing that you would need to confess. Maybe there's bitterness in your heart towards someone that you would need to forgive. I don't know what it is. 
It's going to look different for every one of you based on your circumstances, your choices, your relationships. But what would it look like for you to repent today? I want to urge you, whatever it means, whatever it costs, whatever it would require for you to repent and trust Jesus, it will be worth it. It's worth it. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 42, then the thief said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. You can be free. You can be free, brothers and sisters. And repentance and belief in Jesus, they are not just for the non-Christian. There's some of you here this morning that you need to repent and turn and trust Christ for the first time. But if you're a Christian, Martin Luther said all of the Christian life is one of repentance. All of it. doesn't mean you can lose your salvation and then you've got to re-up. That's not what it means. What it means is you can be saved and not experience the joy of your salvation. So what happened to David? Psalm 51. He lost that experience, that intimacy, that joy, that richness of his relationship with Christ because he cherished his sin and he wouldn't walk in repentance. And so just because you're a Christian, don't think, oh, this message isn't for me. This is just evangelism. It's for you. Weep for yourself. There's freedom in it. There's joy in it. Let's pray. God, thank you, for, thank you for these instructions, God. Often overlooked. It's something you said on the way to your death. And it's so rich and it's so meaningful. And God, I pray you'd help us to repent. Help us to see the real tragedy of the cross is our sin. God, help us to hate it. God, help us more and more to just not be drawn and enticed by the world. God, give us an appetite for your kingdom. Give us an appetite for your glory. Give us an appetite to know you. Walk in freedom. We pray in Jesus' name.